Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 9 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Henry IV, 1399 to 1413. Down to the moment of his accession, Henry of Lancaster had been aided by an extraordinary series of chances. The king's absence in Ireland, the feeble action of the Duke of York, the prolonged easterly winds which had kept Richard from returning to England, the supineness shown by his chief partisans, were circumstances on which Henry could not have counted when he landed at Ravenspur. If events had fallen out otherwise, it is probable that he would not have dared to seize the throne, but would have stopped short at his original program of claiming justice for himself. But the moment that the usurpation was complete, the inherent weakness of the new ruler's position began to display itself. He was, in reality, no more than the king of a party. His only true supporters were the baronial faction, which had been attached to the Lord's Appellant and the Churchmen, headed by Archbishop Arundel, who would resolve to make him their instrument for the suppression of the Wycliffeites. The support of other partisans could only be bought by encouraging a lively sense of favours to come. Meanwhile, the deposed king had also a powerful baronial faction adhering to him, though for the moment it seemed crushed, and there were many parts of the country where his name was far more popular than that of Henry. The House of Lancaster's claim to the crown was in truth dependent solely on the election by Parliament. In strict hereditary right, the deposition of Richard II made the young Earl of March, son of the Roger of March who fell in Ireland in 1398, heir to the throne, by setting him aside Henry committed himself to the theory of popular election to the crown, and he had therefore always to remember that Parliament might unmake him even as it had made him. Hence the most prominent characteristic of his domestic policy was a determination to keep the two houses in good temper at all costs, a line of conduct which often led him into a subservience to them which earlier kings would have regarded as degrading. Besides managing Parliament, Henry had to keep together the baronial party which supported him and to grant the churchmen all that they asked. Henry had been popular as Earl of Derby, but as king he found that he had no enthusiastic support from the nation. His enemies were many and active, his true friends were few, his interested supporters were greedy but lukewarm, while the bulk of the people cared little for him. It is a great proof of his ability that for fourteen years he kept tight hold on the crown and finally passed it on to his son. His character was well suited for the task that he had undertaken. Though unscrupulous, he was plausible, soft-spoken, and courteous. 
a proud or hot-tempered man would have ruined himself in a few years. But Henry was pliable, cautious, and wary, though when needful he could strike hard blows without hesitation. He had only been two months on the throne when the first of the many rebellions with which he was to be plagued broke out. The leaders were, as might have been expected, the partisans of the late king, Richard's half-brother John Holland, Earl of Huntingdon, his nephew Thomas Holland, Earl of Kent, Montague, Earl of Salisbury, the best known of the Lollards, and Lord Dispenser. Under cover of a tournament they collected several thousand armed men and suddenly marched on Windsor, intending to catch the king unawares. Henry escaped by a lucky chance. He had only half an hour to spare and fled to London where he summoned the citizens to arms. The Hollands and their friends, finding that their first blow had failed, resolved to disperse in order to gather together greater forces. The main body began to retire westward, where they hoped to raise the numerous friends of King Richard in Wales and the Welsh border. This delay was their ruin. The king pursued them in haste, and they broke up without a pitched battle. Kent and Salisbury were slain in a skirmish at Cirencester. Huntington was caught and beheaded in Essex, dispenser at Bristol, both without any form of trial. Four minor chiefs were hung, drawn, and quartered in London, December 1399 to January 1400. This ill-concerted rebellion caused the death of the unfortunate King Richard. To prevent further rebellion in his behalf, Henry secretly caused him to be starved to death in Pontefract Castle. His agony is said to have endured fifteen days, January, February, 1400. His corpse was publicly exposed, but the mystery of his death caused some people to believe that the body shown was not his, and for many years after rumors of his survival were current. An impostor who took his name lived all through Henry's reign at the court of Scotland. The main event of note in the following year marks Henry's anxiety to secure his unsteady throne by giving guarantees for his fidelity to the church party. At the suggestion of Archbishop Arundel, he induced the Parliament to pass the infamous statute De Heretico Comberendo, which condemned to death by fire convicted heretics. No delay was made in commencing the persecution of the Lollards, and before a month was out they counted their first martyr, William Sawtree, a chaplain of London, who was burnt after steadfastly refusing to recant, February 1401. The persecution went on intermittently for the next twenty years. Though they obliged the king by countenancing his assault on the followers of Wycliffe, the Parliament took a very high tone with him in dealing with legislation and finance. They endeavored to bind him down in the matter of expenses and repeatedly propounded to him a theory that no grants of money ought to be made to the crown till all grievances petitioned against by the houses had been previously redressed. Henry temporized and procrastinated, putting off the evil day when he might be obliged to make this great constitutional concession. Richard's death had some temporary effect in checking rebellions, for it was difficult to make the child Edmund of March the head of a political cause and to gather a party round his name. Moreover, the long uncertainty as to the deposed king's death 
kept men from recognizing his heir. The next troubles which Henry had to face were connected not with plots to change the English succession, but with a national rebellion in Wales. For a full century the principality had been undisturbed by civil strife, and Welsh troops had served Edward III faithfully in all his wars. But now a chief of genius arose in the person of Owain Glendour, or Glendower as the English called him, who descended from the old kings of Gwyneth. His countrymen had never been partisans of Lancaster, and readily took arms when he called on them to resist the usurper. Owen made some pretense of rising in Richard's behalf, but he was really fighting for his own hand to restore Welsh independence. The rebellion was national and had nothing to do with English dynastic matters. When Glendower descended from his hills, it was not to rally partisans in England, but to ravage the border shires up to the gates of Shrewsbury and Worcester. Henry sent army after army against the rebels, but he could never catch them. They retired to the mountains till the invader's food was exhausted and turned to harass his rear guard when he departed. When a larger expedition, led by the king himself, marched into Wales, it met with such bad weather and suffered so severely that the English complained that Owen was a wizard and had leagued himself with the powers of the air to discomfit his foes, 1402. The Welsh rebellion gave no signs of spreading into England, but other troubles arose to touch Henry more nearly. The French king, armed to avenge his dethroned son-in-law, and threatened invasion. Norman privateers ravaged many of the towns of the southern coast. At the same time, the Scots, under the Earl of Douglas, crossed the border and advanced into England. They suffered, however, a crushing defeat on Hamilton Hill at the hands of Henry Percy, son of the Earl of Northumberland, and Douglas himself was taken prisoner with many other Scottish nobles, 14th of September, 1402. This victory, however, was destined to have dangerous consequences. The king demanded that the captives should be made over to him, since he was desirous of filling his depleted exchequer with their ransoms. But the Percys had looked upon the money as their own, and bitterly resented the order. Northumberland had been Henry's chief supporter at his usurpation, and thought that nothing could be denied him. When peremptorily summoned to obey, he resolved to refuse, and hastily planned a rebellion, for his power was so great in the north that he could put into the field a whole army of his own retainers. The rising was a mere outburst of feudal anarchy, the Percy clan being its sole authors. Northumberland placed his gallant and reckless son Henry, whom people called Hotspur, at the head of his followers. He released his prisoner Douglas, who consented to espouse his cause, and he called in his brother Thomas Percy, Earl of Worcester, to his aid. They sent messengers to Owen Glendower to secure his cooperation, and resolved to use the name of the little Earl of March to cover their rebellion. They then formally defied Henry, and declared him a perjured usurper and the murderer of his rightful king. The elder Percy remained in Yorkshire to watch the loyalists of the north, who had taken arms under Rafe Neville, Earl of Westmoreland, the head of a family which had been the local rivals of the Percys. His son Henry, Hotspur, and the Earls of Worcester and Douglas marched into Cheshire 
a district always devoted to Richard II, and then pressed toward Shrewsbury, where Glendower and the Welsh were to join them. The king, however, marching hastily from London with a small army, threw himself between the Percys and Wales, and brought them to action at Hatleyfield, two miles outside Shrewsbury. After a fierce battle, Hotspur was slain, and his uncle and Douglas captured. Worcester was immediately beheaded. He deserved no better fate, as he had been one of those who betrayed Richard II and had received more than thirty thousand pounds in gifts from the usurper against whom he now had taken arms, July twenty-first, fourteen o three. Northumberland, hearing that his son was dead, made abject professions of repentance and was admitted to mercy on promising to surrender his numerous castles in the north. Less than two years of comparative quiet followed the king's victory at Shrewsbury. Owen Glendower still held his own in Wales, but England was for a short time at peace. But in 1405 troubles began again. Henry's suspicions were first roused by an attempt to steal away the young Earl of March from Windsor, where he was kept in safe custody. Soon after, insurrection again broke out in the north. It was directed by two leaders who had hereditary grudges against the king. Richard Scroop, Archbishop of York, was the brother of that Scroop, Earl of Wilts, who had been beheaded at Bristol in 1399. Thomas Mowbray, the Earl Marshal, was the son of the Mowbray whom Henry had accused of treason in 1398 and had faced in the lists of Coventry. His father had died in exile, and the son became a bitter enemy of the House of Lancaster. Scroop and Mowbray raised a force at York, and seeing rebellion afoot, the old Earl of Northumberland took arms in his own county to aid them. All three leaders agreed to recognize Edmund of March as king. But Henry's fortune was still strong. His lieutenant, the Earl of Westmoreland, broke the back of the rising by capturing the archbishop and the Earl Marshal by a villainous piece of ill faith. Having invited them to meet him under a flag of truce, he seized them when they came to the conference and put them in chains. Henry hurried northward, and on his arrival at York ordered both the prisoners to be executed. They received no trial before their peers, but were hurriedly condemned by an extemporized court and beheaded an hour after, June 8, 1405. The death of Scroop caused widespread horror and dismay. No archbishop save Becket had ever been put to death for withstanding his king, and the northern clergy and people saluted Scroop as a martyr. Henry fell grievously ill a few days after, and was never a hale man for the rest of his life. The epileptic fits and leprosy which gradually grew upon him were universally regarded as heaven's vengeance for the archbishop's cruel end. But meanwhile, the cause of rebellion did not prosper. The king's artillery blew Northumberland's castles to pieces in a few discharges, and the old earl had to flee into Scotland, where he lurked for three years, waiting for another opportunity for a blow at his enemy. Before it came, other troubles had been vexing Henry, his parliaments, with which he dared not quarrel, had learned to treat him with scant respect. In 1406 they demanded and obtained from him the right to audit his accounts and made him cut down the expenses of his household. In 1407 he had to acknowledge that the commons 
had the sole right of initiating money grants. He was also made to promise to do nothing without first taking advice of his counsel. The weakness of his position is best understood by the fact that he allowed Parliament to deal with him in such a manner. No king whose throne was safe would have tolerated such interference. In 1407, the foreign relations of the crown slightly improved. The danger of invasion from France had hitherto been very real. Twice great French fleets had been collected in the Channel, and though they had not landed an army on the coast of Kent, yet flying squadrons had sacked many south country ports, and once a considerable body of troops had been sent to aid Glendower in Wales. The soul of the opposition to Henry IV had been Louis, Duke of Orléans, the king's brother, but in November 1407 he was murdered by the secret contrivance of his cousin, the Duke of Burgundy. His death was the cause of the outbreak of a long civil war between the party of nobles who had previously followed him and the partisans of Burgundy. Engrossed in domestic quarrels, the French had no longer any desire to dream of invading England. Their king, Charles VI, was utterly unable to keep his realm together, for he had become subject to fits of melancholy madness which came on him every summer and often disabled him for four and five months at a time. Soon, instead of France dreaming of molesting England, it was England which thought of interfering in faction-ridden France. In 1408, Henry was able to suppress the last of the many insurrections which were raised against him. The old Earl of Northumberland, Lord Bardolph, and the Welsh Bishop of Bangor slipped over the border and raised a considerable force, but they were met and crushed at the Battle of Branham Moor by Sir Thomas Rokeby, Sheriff of Yorkshire. Both the rebel peers were slain. This was the last trouble which came from the direction of Scotland, where King Henry had of late secured much influence over the government. For King Robert's son and heir, Prince James, was taken at sea as he was crossing to France, 1406, and the Duke of Albany, who ruled in his brother's behalf and wished to keep all the power for himself, made a secret agreement by which Henry undertook to hold the young prince a captive while the duke covenanted in return not to molest England. Thus Henry was freed from the danger on the side both of France and Scotland, and had only the Welsh rebellion left on his hands. But he had fallen into wretched health, and from 1409 to 1411 was almost a chronic invalid. Most of the functions of government were discharged for him by his promising young son, Henry of Monmouth, the Prince of Wales. When only a boy, he had fought at his father's side at Shrewsbury, and in Wales, now as a young man of twenty, he was already a hard-working statesman and soldier. There seems little room in his busy life for those curious tales of youthful riot and debauchery, and consorting with disreputable companions, which popular tradition associated with his name, and which the genius of Shakespeare has immortalized. The greater part of Henry's time was spent in hard soldiering in Wales, where he was constantly chasing Glendower's rebel bands, at first with small success. But as the years rolled on, the final triumph of the great guerrilla chief grew less and less probable, since the House of Lancaster was growing more firmly established in England. At last, his followers began to desert him, 
and Prince Henry was able to pacify the greater part of the country, though down to the day of his death Glendower was never wholly subdued. It is in the end of the period of Henry of Monmouth's administration in behalf of his father, September through December, 1411, that the first English interference in France since the peace of 1393 falls. The quarrel of the Burgundian and Orleanist factions being at its height, Henry intervened in behalf of the former and sent a small force across the channel, which helped the Burgundians to a victory over their enemies at Saint-Cloud. But this policy was not destined to be carried any further. In 1412 the king's health grew better for a short time, and he was able to take a greater share in public business. He seems to have somewhat resented the way in which his eldest son had monopolized the conduct of affairs during his illness, and showed his displeasure by relegating the Prince of Wales to the background for a time, and employing his second son, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, as his chief deputy and agent. In consequence of this change in policy, peace was made with the faction of Orléans, or the Armagnac, as they were called, from their new leader, Bernard, Count of Armagnac, who had taken the murdered duke's place. Shortly after, King Henry was once more smitten down with his old disease, and died rather suddenly at Westminster, on March twentieth, 1413, after having been reconciled to his eldest son. After all his troubles and dangers, he expired just as his throne seemed at last secure. But though he had rooted in his dynasty, his reign had not been a success. He left the country poorer than he had found it, civil war had been incessant, the central government was weak, the baronage and nation divided, and the blood feuds had been started that were to last for three generations and to end in the terrible Wars of the Roses. End of chapter 9。ご視聴ありがとうございました。as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day.